I invite you to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31. We bring to close this morning our study of the excellent wife, the valiant wife, as the Hebrew might be translated, and as described in the poem that closes the last chapter of the book of Proverbs. In verses 10 through 12, we learn of her exquisite value, a value realized particularly in her orientation toward her husband. Verse 10 reads, An excellent wife who can find... She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Verses 13 through 27 then display her value, a worth realized primarily in her skillful industry in behalf of others particularly in behalf of her family. Verse 13, She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet, the best of wool. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates while he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing. And she laughs at the time to come, for she is prepared. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. What we have witnessed in verses 10 through 27 is the portrait of a truly beautiful woman. She is selfless and wise. She is energetic and talented. She is entrepreneurial, compassionate, gracious, industrious, And she lives as an endless source of good to others, particularly to her family. As we think of this model woman in light of the entire Bible, we must remember that her profile is prophetically patterned after the perfections of Jesus Christ. On this side of the cross, she is the kind of woman whose conformity to Jesus emanates from her morally skillful pattern of life. Yet for all of our academic appreciation, as contemporary Western readers, we are severely tempted to undervalue this model of biblical femininity. Young Christian men and women seeking marriage are severely tempted to undervalue her worth. Husbands and wives can easily ignore the high call of her moral standard upon each of us. 
Parents will naturally devalue her example in the training of children. Now, I say this generally because as sinners we always struggle to value what we should value as highly as we ought. But practically speaking, I say this because we face an unrelenting assault from our culture against God's portrait of a praiseworthy woman. We inhabit a culture that glamorizes and idealizes a woman's physical beauty and marketability as the essence of her worth. We inhabit a culture that at no level outside of the church, sadly often not even in the church, at no public level will you ever see a woman exalted for her emulation of this model. Nowhere. A culture will always praise what it values. And what does our culture value in women? The answer is provided at every turn by the advertising industry. Advertisers are in business. They're all competing with one another for your dollars, and so they give you what you want so that you will buy their product over that of a competitor. And what do people want When it comes to women, physical beauty. TV, billboards, the magazine rack at the grocer, internet ads, everywhere you turn, physical beauty is trumpeted as the all-important thing. Physical beauty and charm is what our culture praises because that is what our sensual culture values. In Proverbs 31, we are counseled by God to set our values differently, resulting in a very distinct symphony of praise, a symphony that closes out this poem, a praise that is so distinct from what we see in our culture. We focus then on these last verses of this great poem. Verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. We find, first of all, the praise of her family. And as is true with Proverbs, our task here is to set on these statements to think clearly about them, to turn them over, to meditate upon them, and to fill them up with the meaning that they hold. It is one thing, as we consider verse 28, to secure the acclaim afforded to the supermodel, to get anonymous praise from the lens of a camera and from the ogling eyes of men with whom you have no relationship at all. But this woman, we notice, secures the praise of the people in her life who know her best. Her children and her husband rise up, depicting an attitude of respect and honor. They together extol her excellence because they witness firsthand the fruit of her character and the beauty of her wisdom every day of their lives. Certainly she has defects. There is sin in her life. She's a sinner. But that's not the point of this poem as it idealizes true womanhood. But when that man pauses, the husband of a sinner, 
when he pauses to consider the course of her life, when her children leave the home and pause to remember her, their mouths fill with a symphony of praise because of who she is. Together they stand to their feet and bless her and praise her as they consider how profoundly she has benefited their lives. And I believe it is this acclaim for which she lives on earth. That of her husband and her children. Verse 29, in their words of praise they say, Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Excellently, there again is that word that starts the poem in verse 10. Valiantly. She is linked to the heroes of Israel, to the great warriors, the great icons of that day. She too is a warrior. She is a valiant one. She has heroic standing in the nation. You have done excellently. You have done valiantly with united voice. Her husband and children insist. You are the world's best mom. The world's best wife. It's hyperbole, of course. It can't be technically true. But what a gift is the woman who for all practical purposes is seen as the world's best mom and wife to those that know her best and that she loves the most. I think it's far less rare for children to praise their mother and for her husband to roll his eyes and scoff at their naivete. I think that it is far less rare for a husband to praise his wife and for her children to despise her. But here, of exquisite worth, a rare jewel is this woman who receives united praise from both camps. Let me hone in, mothers, just on your role as mother. I think the wrong attitude here would be to say, I'm going to do what is right. I could not care less that my children appreciate me. I think clearly here that would be a wrong way of thinking. We should desire that they praise you for the right reasons. But I think an equally wrong attitude on the other side is I'm going to downplay correction and indulge my children so that they always praise me. I think a mother must learn to strike the balance of offering honorable pointed correction and discipline on the one hand, while building up the character and depth of her children with gracious words and kind deeds on the other hand. This is a fine balance to strike. But mothers who are genuinely praised by their godly children and by their godly husbands are never indulgent mothers, nor are they harsh They possess gracious character and speak the truth in love consistently. To our boys and single men, let me say, we are wired as men and our culture strokes this orientation to value most the woman who turns the most heads. Physical beauty is not evil, but learn to avoid the young woman whose life is oriented toward attracting the eyes of men. Run from her. Run from that picture. Value the young woman who has the character to live a life of quiet heroism in the best interest of her family. Before you permit young men, any woman to enthrall you with her beauty, you should ask whether or not she will make a good mother. That's a much larger question than how she looks to you at this point in time. 
to our girls and single women, do not orient your life toward achieving physical beauty. Don't orient yourself that way. Your sinful heart will tempt you to spend lots of time and effort impressing men with clothes and with makeup, with hairstyles and products. Focus on learning how to run a home, how to benefit a husband, how to care for children. And then, in the right sense of the word, test God here. Trust Him. Emphasize becoming a good woman and let God take care of arranging for good men to find you attractive. I think women should dress in a feminine manner and take good care of their bodies. But work at spending less time on the external and more time on the heart. As one woman obsessed with beauty reported in one article, she learned through sanctification to look at the mirror just twice as she left the house. Once to get it all right, and twice to make sure she didn't miss something. And she canceled forever. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and on. Now you may not be as popular with the crowd today if you take that orientation, but you will bring far greater joy to your family in the future, and far greater joy to your own heart will come. Trust God in this. And on that very point, God's counsel continues in verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. I want to park on this for some period of time because it is something that we need to hear in our culture, particularly. All cultures have need of this word of counsel. But charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. We live in a culture that prizes beauty as virtually the only thing that matters. It defines who you are. This is not unlike the Hellenistic culture which surrounded the Israelis. And so God's counsel here is radically countercultural. He's saying that the external beauty of a woman is ultimately an empty matter. What does that mean? He doesn't tell us. We have to flesh it out for ourselves. But it often does not deliver what it seems to promise to either the man or the woman. It's empty. If we take this word vain, the Hebrew word can be translated a puff of air, and thus figuratively fleeting and transitory. It's passing away as we speak. And in our day, thirdly, beauty is often a total illusion. It is empty. Sometimes it's not even real. Perhaps you've seen the Dove commercial. I want to show this video clip here, and I'd like you to watch for a few things as we'll just review it once. Ignore the words, ignore the esteem campaign behind it. All of that's meaningless to us. What I'd like you to watch very carefully is the face of the woman that you see sit down at the beginning. Assess it. Look at it. Critique it. The rest, you won't need any help watching, but I'd like you to watch at the end two young women walking by on a street. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is empty. In C.S. Lewis's classic fictional work, Screwtape Letters, the demon Screwtape, coaches his understudy Wormwood on the finer points of temptation. 
And in a letter dealing with the sexual temptation of a new believer, Screwtape describes the demonic strategy in these terms. Listen to it a generation before what we've just seen. Lewis writes, We are more and more, again, from the words of a demon, we are more and more directing the desires of men to something which does not exist. Making the role of the eye in sexuality more and more important and at the same time making its demands more and more impossible. In an article on fashion, David Pallison quotes a New York fashion industry worker summarizing her statement with these words, When we got a photograph of a model for a magazine cover, we put it in the computer and reworked her picture. We lengthened the jawline, gave the cheeks a slight hollow, slimmed the thighs and hips, creating someone who never existed. When I'd actually meet a model in real life, she'd look sort of squat and dumpy compared to what she looked like on the magazine cover. Pallison comments, on the magazine cover, she looked like a Barbie doll. In real life, she looked like a person. Now, is God saying that external beauty is evil? No, that's not what it says. Is God saying that physical beauty is meaningless? Again, I don't think this is right. This is not an accurate assessment of all of God's counsel. We have here just a simple line, not even a sentence. And we need to fill it in with a full-orbed sense of biblical revelation, highlighting just a few points along the way. Proverbs 5, in this book itself, verse 18 says, Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a gracious doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. This is clear evidence. God is no prude. He's not saying that physical appearance is meaningless. Read the seventh chapter of the Song of Solomon. Don't read it right now. But look at it and ask yourself, with the eroticism that is there, does God think physical beauty is evil? Clearly not. God's Word declares in Genesis 29.17, did you ever catch this? It declares, the Bible says, Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. That's God's commentary, His inspired text. God does not blush to say that Rachel had beautiful features and a shapely figure. It's right there. There is nothing evil about a man appreciating the physical beauty of a woman. That's not the problem. God is an exquisite artist. And the most beautiful artifact of His creative handiwork was Eve. I suspect the most gorgeous woman in form and appearance who has ever set foot on this planet because she was untainted by sin in every sense of the term. And as the Song of Solomon demonstrates, God was by no means averse to Adam delighting in Eve's beauty. What is wrong is when we value that beauty sinfully, idolatrously, selfishly, lustfully. Men are generally tempted to place too much value on an attractive woman's appearance. And when we look at a woman's external beauty and allow that to be the chief feature of our desire to marry her or to use her, we actually despise 
the artist. Think of it this way. You meet a master sculptor. The man is brilliant and does all kinds of great large sculptures and small sculptures out of all kinds of materials and, and, and you're just thrilled to meet the person and, and you go to a sculpture show, an art show that this sculptor is putting on and there on a table with all the light shining down is a figurine made out of marble. And you walk around and say, wow, that is amazing. How do you do that? As you look further at it, you realize that there's a finger pointing up on this woman and kind of a sharp point to it, and you pick it up and scratch your underarm with it. Have you honored the sculptor? No, you've just shamed him and treated him like garbage. This is his work of art. You don't scratch yourself with it. In like manner, when you lust after the beauty of a woman other than your wife, when you place the physical attractiveness of a potential mate over her godliness, you take God's creative handiwork and you scratch yourself with it. You bring no honor to the work of art and you bring no honor to the creator of that beauty, if indeed it's even real beauty. Any beauty you see in any woman is to be appreciated in such a way as to bring honor to her maker. I'm not going to fill in a lot of details there of how that works. But if she is not your wife, you do not crave her as your own or slake your lust by fantasizing about her. If she is a potential mate, you refuse to esteem her physical beauty as more important than the condition of her soul. And if you do anything else, and I'm not filling in a lot of details, you take the statue and you scratch yourself with it. Young men, we need to learn to determine a woman's worth by the condition of her soul. Appreciating the beauty that God has given her physically. Failing to do so is a very ancient and troubling sin. In Genesis chapter 6, in my reading of the first two verses there, we have a godly line of people, the sons of God. I, I don't take them to be angels, and I know that's a debatable point, but they are the sons of God who I think are described in the previous chapters as those who have begun to gather together to worship the name of Yahweh, chapter 4 and verse 26. And in that scene, we see these sons of God who come to the daughters of men and their sin is that they take from them those that are appealing to the eye. In other words, they put physical beauty as the primary reason why they choose these women and they do not consider whether or not they know God and are a worshiper of Yahweh. Early in the human story, we have physical beauty placed above godliness and it leads to the judgment of the flood. And as in that day, so in ours, we have Christian young men who place beauty first. The beauty of the skin and the external appearance and the beauty of the soul, second. 
It's a wrong path. What we must learn to value is what is in a woman's heart. And that's the next point in verse 30. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is, is vain. It's the fear of the Lord that is to be highly valued. When we cut to the heart of the matter and we ask, what makes this woman tick, this Proverbs 31 woman? It is this, her worth which is to lead to her praise, is grounded in her fear of God. She has a deep-seated reverence for the Lord. And her reverent submission to His Word and will serves as the foundation on which all of her works and relationships thrive. On this side of the cross, what does it mean? On this side of the cross, the most beautiful souls are those in whom God dwells by His Spirit and is transforming them from one stage of glory to the next. This transformation is going on on the inside while the outside is decaying and falling apart and dying. Who do we think we are to put the outside that's dying and transitory and falling apart above that which God is doing and which will increase throughout all eternity in glory? As First Peter 3 puts it, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. Not that gold is wrong, Doing something with your hair is wrong any more than putting clothing on is wrong. It's the idea is don't let that be what makes you beautiful. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. If we are pursuing what is precious in our sensual culture's sight and not pursuing what is precious in God's sight, who are we fooling? And what are we doing? Because she is growing in Christ-likeness, the truly worthy woman will not grow less beautiful with age, but more beautiful with age. Find such a woman, and you will find one who never grows ugly, no matter what this fallen world does. To her body. The story is told of a young man who endured an unusual test of his commitment to evaluate the heart over the physical appearance. The story has been told in numerous places. I wasn't able to locate the original source. And so I warn you, I'm drawing from Max Lucado's The Angels Were Silent and he doesn't finish the story. That's, I'm sorry, but that's all I could find. But put this together physical beauty over the inner beauty. Which one is to gain the prominence? John Blanchard stood up from the bench, straightened his army uniform and studied the crowd of people making their way through Grand Central Station. He looked for the girl whose heart he knew but whose face he did not. The girl with the rose. His interest in her had begun 13 months before in a Florida library. Taking a book off the shelf, he found himself intrigued, not with the words of the book, but with the notes penciled in the margin. The soft handwriting reflected a thoughtful soul and insightful mind. In the front of the book, he discovered the previous owner's name, Miss Hollis Maynell. With time and effort, 
he located her address. She lived in New York City. He wrote her a letter introducing himself and inviting her to correspond. The next day, he was shipped overseas for service in World War II. During the next year and one month, the two grew to know each other through the mail. Each letter was a seed falling on a fertile heart. A romance was budding. Blanchard requested a photograph, but she refused. She felt that if he really cared, it would not matter what she looked like. When the day finally came for him to return from Europe, they scheduled their first meeting. 7 p.m. at the Grand Central Station in New York. You'll recognize me, she wrote, by the red rose I'll be wearing on my lapel. So it's 7 o'clock. He was in the station looking for a girl whose heart he loved, but whose face he had never seen. I'll let Mr. Blanchard tell you what happened. A young woman was coming toward me, her figure long and slim. Her blonde hair lay back in curls from her delicate ears. Her eyes were blue as flowers. Her lips and chin had a gentle firmness. And in her pale green suit, she was like springtime come alive. I started toward her, entirely forgetting to notice that she was not wearing a rose. As I moved, a small provocative smile curled her lips. Going my way, sailor? She mumbled. Almost uncontrollably, I made one step closer to her. And then I saw Hollis Maynell. She was standing almost directly behind the girl, a woman well past 40. She had graying hair tucked under a worn hat, she was more than plump. Her thick ankled feet thrust into low-heeled shoes. The girl in the green suit was walking quickly away, and I felt as though I was split in two. So keen was my desire to follow her, and yet so deep was my longing for the woman whose spirit had truly companioned me and upheld my own. And there she stood. Her pale, plump face was gentle and sensible. Her gray eyes had a warm and kindly twinkle. And I did not hesitate. My finger gripped the small, worn, blue leather copy of the book that was to identify me to her. This would not be love, but it would be something precious. Something perhaps even better than romantic love. A friendship for which I had been and must ever be grateful. I squared my shoulders. I saluted and held out the book to the woman, even though while I spoke I felt choked by the bitterness of my disappointment. I'm Lieutenant John Blanchard, and you must be Miss Mayno. I am so glad to meet you. May I take you to dinner? The woman's face broadened, into a tolerant smile. I don't know what this is about, son, she answered, but the young lady in the green suit who just went by, she begged me to wear this rose on my coat. 
And she said, if you were to ask me out to dinner, I should go and tell you that she is waiting for you in the restaurant across the street. She said it was some kind of test. Sorry, I don't know how it ends. <laughs> some kind of test. It may not be that dramatic for us, but I think something similar to that kind of test is taking place all the time. The test of allowing the external to overwhelm the internal. The test of prizing what is physical in nature over what is spiritual in nature. We must learn to prize her for her devotion. Her family praises her. Her devotion praises her. Very briefly, we find the praise of her work in verse 31. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. The fruit of her hands described primarily in verses 13 through 27. She is a skillful, diligent, talented, enterprising woman and the whole community should perceive her worth. Not only her family, but those who sit at the city gate. The community should understand who she is and praise her. As Dalich puts it, they honor themselves who seek to praise the works of such a woman. In fact, this final verse records the praise of God Himself. We have here nothing less than His evaluation of such a soul. And we would be fools not to value what God values. As Augustine argued in The City of God, the chief task of the teacher is to get students to love what they should love to the degree they should love it and to despise what they should despise to the degree that they should hate it. I think too often we hate and despise the fact that we don't look perfectly. We hate it way more than we should. And often we love way too much physical capacities, athletically and in looks. We value what we should not. Obviously, a man who despises hot, humid weather more than he despises sexual lust is out of sync with God. You can despise hot, humid weather a little bit, but you should despise lust greatly. As Jesus said, if need be, cut out your eyes. Used as a figure of speech, but the point is this is serious. A woman who loves her children as much as she loves God is an idolater. It's not wrong to love your children, but it's how we love and hate everything that matters. Do we do it to the right degree? Do we, do we value the right things? When we value physical beauty in a woman more than her fear of God, we err. Whether that woman is a potential date, the face in the mirror, or a model on a billboard. What we should learn to esteem and thus to praise as the people of God, is a woman who fears the Lord. And why is that? Not only because her heart is on track, but we should do so as we even more value God. We should value 
the work that God is doing to transform one another as believers into the image of Christ. The ultimate worth is Jesus. The ultimate one to praise in this world is Christ. He should receive the highest praise. And for those who value the right things, for those who value God above all, they will praise the right people. And number one will not be physical appearance, but will be the fear of the Lord in the soul of man. That is of utmost worth in this world and in the next. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, I ask You if this will change anything. If our meditations together here around Your Word will make any difference at all. I plead with You, Father, to open up the eyes of the blind to hammer soft, hard hearts, to change our perspectives, to steer our path in this world. I pray that our time together would have a genuine influence on how we live. Help us to balance the application, to not throw away the importance of beauty in the physical body, to not despise it, though it is decaying and falling apart from sin, it will be resurrected and it is and was created good, though now cursed by sin. God, help us also with this and perhaps our greatest battle to not idolize the body, our own or someone else's. But I pray, God, that we would see beauty in such a way that brings glory and honor to the Creator. We praise You as the Maker and Sustainer of all things for all that You have done and for the wonder of the human body and beauty. But God, above all, we praise You for the wonder of saving grace in the heart. And I pray that the fear of God would be that after which our young ladies pursue as their ultimate goal. I pray, God, that it would be that which our parents teach and model, that it would be that which our young men prize above all else. I plead that You would preserve our young people from making important what is unimportant and despising what is of utmost value. Help us to esteem and to praise You are God. And from that base, to praise everything that we should and despise everything we should to the degree that we should. Will you change us, Father? We pray that you will. For anyone who does not know you as Savior, ultimately what we have discussed will make no sense. But I pray for any unbeliever among us that you will open their eyes to see the saving grace of Jesus Christ who died in our place to pay the penalty of our sin and who rose from the dead. And I pray that You would help them to know that they can become a new man or a new woman inwardly as You give life to the soul when You forgive our sins. Draw such a one to Yourself today, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen.